The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment by C.S. Lewis In England we have lately had a controversy about capital punishment. I do not know whether a murderer is more likely to repent and make a good end on the gallows a few weeks after his trial, or in the prison infirmary thirty years later. I do not know whether the fear of death is an indispensable deterrent. I need not, for the purpose of this article, decide whether it is a morally permissible deterrent. Those are questions which I propose to leave untouched. My subject is not capital punishment in particular, but that theory of punishment in general which the controversy showed to be almost universal among my fellow countrymen. It may be called the humanitarian theory. Those who hold it think that it is mild and merciful. In this I believe that they are seriously mistaken. I believe that the humanity which it claims is a dangerous illusion and disguises the possibility of cruelty and injustice without end. I urge a return to the traditional or retributive theory, not solely, not even primarily, in the interests of society, but in the interests of the criminal. According to the humanitarian theory, to punish a man because he deserves it, and as much as he deserves, is mere revenge, and therefore barbarous and immoral. It is maintained that the only legitimate motives for punishing are the desire to deter others by example, or to mend the criminal. When this theory is combined, as frequently happens, with the belief that all crime is more or less pathological, the idea of mending tails off into that of healing or curing, and punishment becomes therapeutic. Thus it appears at first sight that we have passed from the harsh and self-righteous notion of giving the wicked their deserts to the charitable and enlightened one of tending the psychologically sick. What could be more amiable? One little point which is taken for granted in this theory needs, however, to be made explicit. The things done to the criminal, even if they are called cures, will be just as compulsory as they were in the old days when we called them punishments. If a tendency to steal can be cured by psychotherapy, the thief will no doubt be forced to undergo the treatment. Otherwise, society cannot continue. My contention is that this doctrine, merciful though it appears, really means that each one of us, from the moment he breaks the law, is deprived of the rights of a human being. The reason is this. The humanitarian theory removes from punishment the concept of desert. But the concept of desert is the only connecting link between punishment and justice. It is only as deserved or undeserved that a sentence can be just or unjust. I do not here contend that the question, is it deserved, is the only one we can reasonably ask about a punishment. We may very properly ask whether it is likely to deter others and to reform the criminal. But neither of these two last questions is a question about justice. There is no sense in talking about a just deterrent or a just cure. We demand of a deterrent not whether it is just, but whether it will deter. We demand of a cure not whether it is just, but whether it succeeds. Thus, when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves, and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the sphere of justice altogether. Instead of a person, a subject of rights, we now have a mere object, a patient, a case. The distinction will become clearer if we ask who will be qualified to determine sentences when sentences are no longer held to derive their propriety from the criminal's deservings. On the old view, the problem of fixing the right sentence was a moral problem. Accordingly, the judge who did it was a person trained in jurisprudence, trained, that is, in a science which deals with rights and duties, and which, in origin at least, was consciously accepting guidance from the law of nature and from scripture. We must admit that in the actual penal code of most countries at most times, these high originals were so much modified by local custom, class interests, and utilitarian concessions as to be very imperfectly recognizable. But the code was never in principle, and not always in fact, beyond the control of the conscience of the society. And when, say in 18th century England, actual punishments conflicted too violently with the moral sense of the community, juries refused to convict, and reform was finally brought about. This was possible because, so long as we are thinking in terms of desert, the propriety of the penal code, being a moral question, is a question on which every man has the right to an opinion, not because he follows this or that profession, but because he is simply a man, a rational animal enjoying the natural light. 
But all this has changed when we drop the concept of desert. The only two questions we may now ask about a punishment are whether it deters and whether it cures. But these are not questions on which anyone is entitled to have an opinion simply because he is a man. He is not entitled to an opinion even if, in addition to being a man, he should happen also to be a jurist, a Christian, and a moral theologian. For they are not questions about principle, but about matter of fact, and for such each one in his own art is to be believed. Only the expert penologist, let barbarous things have barbarous names, in the light of previous experiment, can tell us what is likely to deter. Only the psychotherapist can tell us what is likely to cure. It will be in vain for the rest of us, speaking simply as men, to say, but this punishment is hideously unjust, hideously disproportionate to the criminal's deserts. The experts with perfect logic will reply, but nobody was talking about deserts. No one was talking about punishment in your archaic, vindictive sense of the word. Those are the statistics proving that this treatment deters. Here are the statistics proving that this other treatment cures. What is your trouble? The humanitarian theory, then, removes sentences from the hands of jurists whom the public conscience is entitled to criticize, and places them in the hands of technical experts, whose special sciences do not even employ such categories as rights or justice. It might be argued that since this transference results from an abandonment of the old idea of punishment, and therefore of all vindictive motives, it will be safe to leave our criminals in such hands. I will not pause to comment on the simple-minded view of fallen human nature which such a belief implies. Let us rather remember that the cure of criminals is to be compulsory, and let us then watch how the theory actually works in the mind of the humanitarian. The immediate starting point of this article was a letter read in one of our leftist weeklies. The author was pleading that a certain sin, now treated by our own laws as a crime, should henceforward be treated as a disease. And he complained that under the present system, the offender, after a term in jail, was simply let out to return to his original environment, where he would probably relapse. What he complained of was not the shutting up, but the letting out. On his remedial view of punishment, the offender should, of course, be detained until he was cured. And, of course, the official straighteners are the only people who can say when that is. The first result of the humanitarian theory is, therefore, to substitute for a definite sentence, reflecting to some extent the community's moral judgment on the degree of ill-desert involved, an indefinite sentence terminable only by the word of those experts, and they are not experts in moral theology, nor even in the law of nature, who inflict it. Which of us, if he stood in the dock, would not prefer to be tried by the old system? It may be said that, by the continued use of the word punishment, and the use of the verb inflict, I am misrepresenting humanitarians. They are not punishing, not inflicting, only healing. But do not let us be deceived by a name. To be taken without consent from my home and friends, to lose my liberty, to undergo all those assaults on my personality which modern psychotherapy knows how to deliver, to be remade after some pattern of normality hatched in a Viennese laboratory to which I never professed allegiance, to know that this process will never end until either my captors have succeeded or I grown wise enough to cheat them with an apparent success, who cares whether this is called punishment or not? That it includes most of the elements for which any punishment is feared, shame, exile, bondage, and years eaten by the locust, is obvious. Only enormous ill-desert could justify it. But ill-desert is the very conception which the humanitarian theory has thrown overboard. If we turn from the curative to the deterrent justification of punishment, we shall find the new theory even more alarming. When you punish a man in terrorem, make of him an example to others, you are admittedly using him as a means to an end, someone else's end. This in itself would be a very wicked thing to do. On the classical theory of punishment, it was of course justified on the ground that the man deserved it. That was assumed to be established before any question of making him an example arose. You then, as the saying is, kill two birds with one stone. In the process of giving him what he deserved, you set an example to others. But take away the desert, and the whole morality of the punishment disappears. Why in heaven's name am I to be sacrificed to the good of society in this way, unless of course I deserve it? But that is not the worst. If the justification of exemplary punishment is not to be based on desert, but solely on its efficacy as a deterrent, it is not absolutely necessary that the man we punish should even have committed the crime. 
The deterrent effect demands that the public should draw the moral, If we do such an act, we shall suffer like that man. The punishment of a man actually guilty whom the public think innocent will not have the desired effect. The punishment of a man actually innocent will, provided the public think him guilty. But every modern state has powers which make it easy to fake a trial. When a victim is urgently needed for exemplary purposes and a guilty victim cannot be found, all the purposes of deterrence will be equally served by the punishment, call it cure if you prefer, of an innocent victim, provided that the public can be cheated into thinking him guilty. It is no use to ask me why I assume that our rulers will be so wicked. The punishment of an innocent, that is, an undeserving man, is wicked only if we grant the traditional view that righteous punishment means deserved punishment. Once we have abandoned that criterion, all punishments have to be justified, if at all, on other grounds that have nothing to do with desert. Where the punishment of the innocent can be justified on those grounds, and it could in some cases be justified as a deterrent, it will be no less moral than any other punishment. Any distaste for it on the part of a humanitarian will be merely a hangover from the retributive theory. It is indeed important to notice that my argument so far supposes no evil intentions on the part of the humanitarian and considers only what is involved in the logic of his position. My contention is that good men, not bad men, consistently acting upon that position, would act as cruelly and unjustly as the greatest tyrants. They might, in some respects, act even worse. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, his cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. Their very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's own will, and cured of states which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on a level with those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. But to be punished, however severely, because we have deserved it, because we ought to have known better, is to be treated as a human person, made in God's image. In reality, however, we must be faced with the possibility of bad rulers armed with a humanitarian theory of punishment. A great many popular blueprints for a Christian society are merely what the Elizabethans called eggs in moonshine, because they assume that the whole society is Christian, or that the Christians are in control. This is not so in most contemporary states. Even if it were, our rulers would still be fallen men, and therefore neither very wise nor very good. As it is, they will usually be unbelievers. And since wisdom and virtue are not the only or the commonest qualifications for a place in the government, they will not often be even the best unbelievers. The practical problem of Christian politics is not that of drawing up schemes for a Christian society, but that of living as innocently as we can with unbelieving fellow subjects under unbelieving rulers, who will never be perfectly wise and good, and who will sometimes be very wicked and very foolish. And when they are wicked, the humanitarian theory of punishment will put in their hands a finer instrument of tyranny than wickedness ever had before. For if crime and disease are to be regarded as the same thing, it follows that any state of mind which our masters choose to call disease can be treated as crime, and compulsorily cured. It will be vain to plead that states of mind which displease government need not always involve moral turpitude, and do not therefore always deserve forfeiture of liberty. For our masters will not be using the concepts of desert and punishment, but those of disease and cure. We know that one school of psychology already regards religion as a neurosis. When this particular neurosis becomes inconvenient to government, what is to hinder government from proceeding to cure it? Such cure will, of course, be compulsory. But under the humanitarian theory, it will not be called by the shocking name of persecution. No one will blame us for being Christians, no one will hate us, no one will revile us. The new Nero will approach us with the silky manners of a doctor, and though all will be in fact as compulsory as the Tunica Molesta, or Smithfield, or Tyburn, all will go on within the unemotional therapeutic sphere where words like right and wrong or freedom and slavery are never heard. 
and thus when the command is given, every prominent Christian in the land may vanish overnight into institutions for the treatment of the ideologically unsound, and it will rest with the expert jailers to say when, if ever, they are to re-emerge. But it will not be persecution. Even if the treatment is painful, even if it is lifelong, even if it is fatal, that will only be a regrettable accident. The intention was purely therapeutic. In ordinary medicine there were painful operations and fatal operations, so in this. But because they are treatment, not punishment, they can be criticized only by fellow experts and on technical grounds, never by men as men and on grounds of justice. This is why I think it is essential to oppose the humanitarian theory of punishment, root and branch, wherever we encounter it. It carries on its front a semblance of mercy which is wholly false. That is how it can deceive men of good will. The error began, perhaps, with Shelley's statement that the distinction between mercy and justice was invented in the courts of tyrants. It sounds noble, and was indeed the error of a noble mind, but the distinction is essential. The older view was that mercy tempered justice, or, on the highest level of all, that mercy and justice had met and kissed. The essential act of mercy was to pardon, and pardon in its very essence involves the recognition of guilt and ill-desert in the recipient. If crime is only a disease which needs cure, not sin which deserves punishment, it cannot be pardoned. How can you pardon a man for having a gumboil or a club foot? But the humanitarian theory wants simply to abolish justice and substitute mercy for it. This means that you start being kind to people before you have considered their rights, and then force upon them supposed kindnesses which no one but you will recognize as kindnesses, and which the recipient will feel as abominable cruelties. You have overshot the mark. Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That is the important paradox. As there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Transplanted to the marshlands of mere humanitarianism, it becomes a man-eating weed, all the more dangerous because it is still called by the same name as the mountain variety. But we ought long ago to have learned our lesson. We should be too old now to be deceived by those humane pretensions which have served to usher in every cruelty of the revolutionary period in which we live. These are the precious balms which will break our heads. There is a fine sentence in Bunyan, it came burning hot into my mind, whatever he said, and however he flattered, when he got me home to his house, he would sell me for a slave. There is a fine couplet, too, in John Ball, Be war or ye be woe, knoweth your friend from your foe.